So Holy Spirit, ask that you would use those words from Scripture and my words and our thoughts to help us to walk in your ways more and more every day. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have ever been to the top of a really tall building or a national park, you've almost certainly seen one of those coin-operated viewers, you know, where you drop in the quarter and you can see the view. And while you're looking, you know, it has this little timer that's going, and you can hear the timer kind of humming, and then you hear this clunk, and it's over, and everything goes dark. That's life. <laughs> Let's stand for the final song. Hope that was edifying. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, where will I be? Where am I going to be when my quarter runs out? And will it have been worth the view? Will it have, well, serious, will it have been worth the experience? In other words, what leads to a non-ordinary, well-lived life? A life filled with the things that really make for long-lasting joy. Things like connection with God, meaning and purpose, great relationships, having a sense of God's presence that gives you joy even in hard times. We spent the last 11 weeks looking at the life of King David, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's plenty of all three. And whatever else you want to say about David, he lived large. He succeeded big, he failed big, he sinned big, and he loved God big. His was not an ordinary life at all. And the Bible describes David, it uses this phrase, as a man after God's own heart, which given how messed up he sometimes could be, and he could be really messed up, that is kind of a shocking, unexpected thing to say. There's a woman in our church in her 60s, and she told my wife recently that she had baked some cookies. And when her husband got home, she said, would you like a cookie? And he just stared at her, eyes wide open, looking very shocked. And he said, what'd you say? And she said, do you want a cookie? And he said, oh, I thought you said, do you want a quickie? Kind of unexpected, kind of not what he expected to hear in that moment. That is, I I run these sermons past a team of people every Thursday morning. They told me it was okay to tell that story. (laughs) Blame them. That's kind of how it feels when God says, David is a man after my own heart. What? How can that be? David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered to cover it up. David, whose son launched a civil war against... Huh? If it tells you anything, it should, give you, it should tell you this. There is hope for you yet. If David can be a man after God's own heart and live an uncommon life filled with meaning, purpose, adventure, and joy, so can you, so can I. And today I want to look at just one of the Psalms that David wrote. He wrote a bunch. I want to look at one, Psalm 139, to discover some of the cures for the common life. And there are four, and they're all going to start with W or P, so hopefully you can maybe kind of remember them. And the first cure for the common life is this, worship. David was a worshiper. Worship comes from the word that means worth. And it's what we think is worth our time, our energy, our attention. And we all, by that definition, therefore, worship something. Don't believe me? Go to a rock concert. Go to a football game. Go to the New York Stock Exchange. You'll see worship. And that raises the question, is what we are worshiping worth it? See, for David, he didn't just worship any old thing. He worshiped God. God for him was center and circumference. In this psalm, he says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In other words, God, even when I am disobeying and running away from you, which David did plenty of, Lord, even there, you find me and you call me back to yourself. 
See, for David, there is a spiritual world around him all the time that is every bit as real as the world of swords and caves and politics and relationships and job and everything else. And whether he is sinning or winning, David puts God on center stage. And that's what worship is, putting the God revealed in Jesus on center stage. And God loves to receive our worship. Not because he's some kind of egomaniac, but because he loves us and he loves connection with us and he loves to be in relationship with us. More than that, he wants to bless us. And worship blesses our lives. Worship makes our life bigger in this. It makes it better in this because it makes life bigger. It gets us out of our obsession with self, which just makes us miserable if we're focused on self. Am I happy today? I'm not kind of happy today. Maybe I'm missing something. You know, just misery, right? Or what are people thinking about me? Always worried about ourselves. And when your world is population me, it's pretty small. But if we worship God, he is big, and so we feel a part of something bigger. Think of it this way. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to boost their self-esteem. But it feels good anyway to be part of something bigger than you. The other way worship improves our lives is it reminds us that God's got our back. David says, even if I settle on the far side of the sea, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. In other words, God, even in the darkness of life, you've got my hand and you're guiding me. Several years ago, my wife and I took our kids to Disneyland and our youngest at the time was around five, uh, so still pretty young, but the other two were seven and nine and they were ready for some of the more advanced rides. So we took them on this one ride that was in the dark and had all kinds of things that jumped out at you, including this big giant snake. And my wife was worried that Lucy, our youngest, would be scared. So she grabbed her hand and was rubbing her back to reassure her. But when the ride ended, Christina realized it wasn't our youngest hand that she was holding, it was our oldest daughter's hand, who wasn't afraid of the ride at all and was wondering why her mother was being so soothing. <laughs> Meanwhile, poor Lucy was way at the end of the row all by herself, tears rolling down her face. We are awesome parents. Like, we nail this thing. Okay, God never loses you in the dark. Wherever you are in life, you are not lost. God knows where you are and he never lets go. He never lets go. He never lets go of you. Even if it is hard for a season, he never lets go. And when we focus on that, that's called worship. And it makes our lives bigger and more fearless because we know we are part of something and are held by someone who is bigger than we are. Practical way to do that this week is just a couple of times a day, pray this short prayer that starts with this sentence, Jesus, what's great about you is, and just fill in the blank. Worship. Second cure for the common life is that David was penitent, which is actually kind of a weird word, not quite accurate, but I wanted to keep the WP thing going, so I'm sticking with it. By penitent, what I mean is he was open about his flaws, his failures, his sins, repented of them. When he messed up, he fessed up and moved on. After he commits adultery and murder, he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No justifications, no caveats, no, yeah, but you got to understand, here's the situation, right? Penitent, open with his flaws and his failures. And that takes guts. See, we think vulnerability about our flaws, we think that's weakness. No, 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 no. It's not, that's not it. Hiding our flaws, that's what's for coward and wimps. Hiding our flaws. Courage is when we can be open about our flaws. And here's how that makes life better. 
It makes life better because it frees us from shame. Now, some of you may think, well, shame's not my issue. I don't, I don't have any shame. Well, I think most of us do at some level. It's all just how it manifests itself. For some folks, it makes them insecure. Others, it gives them this kind of false bravado. For others, it makes us desperate to achieve and succeed, not just to do our best, but to kind of cover over our shame, which just makes it worse. Because when folks admire you for your successes, what is the flip side of that? That they will stop admiring you if they know your failures. Worship success, you increase your shame. And I've said this a few times recently, but I'm going to keep saying because I want you to remember, shame is different than conviction. Conviction says I did wrong. Shame says I am wrong. And shame is always, 100% of the time, always, always, without exception, shame is always from the devil and it is never from God. Because it keeps us from becoming who God created us to be. Shame is that voice in your head that says you're not good enough. Remember what they said about you when you were in high school. Your dad never paid attention to you, even when you made CFO. You weren't your parents' favorite. You're not pretty enough, smart enough, old enough, young enough, whatever it is. And at its core, shame is a fear of disconnection. It's the voice that says, if they only knew, then they would reject me. And if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. But what kills shame is openness and vulnerability. As we allow ourselves to be seen, really seen, for who we really are. And do that with people who will not reject us. Then we feel really connected. Not for the image we create, but for who we really are, good and bad. And that takes away shame's greatest weapon, which is that voice that says, if they only knew, well, now they do, and we're still loved. And we need to do that with at least one trustworthy person, but we've got to start with God. God is the best place to start, which is what David does here. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any evil way within me. See, he's not afraid to have God look deep into his heart. Just lay it all bare in front of the Lord. Why? Because he knows that he is loved. In this psalm, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. How does God feel about you? He is delighted that there should be a you in his universe. He has delayed the end of history. He has delayed Jesus coming back so that we could get to the year of your birth. That's how much you matter to him. And when we get that, it frees us from shame. When we understand that we are that deeply loved, it frees us from shame. But not only that, and here's the best part, it frees us to become who God created us to be, to grow. There's a researcher named Brene Brown who has done her entire life's research on shame and vulnerability. And she jokes that one of the perks of the job is it shuts up chatty people on airplanes. When they ask her what she does for a living, she says, oh, I do research on shame and I see you. (laughs) I thought my job could kill a conversation. That really would. And she's often asked to speak at various business conventions, but they'll always say, but we don't want you to talk about shame which is her research. So she always says, well, then what do you want me to talk about? It's business conventions. So they say creativity, innovation, and change. So she says, okay, how about this? Vulnerability about our shame is the birthplace of creativity, innovation, and change. And here's why. Because shame makes us afraid of what others will think. And it is hard to innovate and be creative and risk and change if you're worried about what other people are thinking about you. And one of the things she's found in her research is that people who can be open about their flaws and failures and shame, that is, penitent, are the most successful and well-adjusted people in her studies and have the highest levels of joy and satisfaction. Why? Because they are free of that shame and therefore free to risk, innovate, change, grow, become who God created them to be. Let me give you just kind of a daily 
example of how this works. My wife is the least sentimental and the most practical person on the planet, which kind of makes it difficult in the gift-giving department. She doesn't want flowers, costs too much money. Doesn't want love letters, what's the point? Many men envy me this. But in some ways, it's kind of a shame because I have a PhD in literature, Shakespeare, which means I can woo women with words. <laughs> Wasted on her, though. Wasted. So for 18 years, I have tried to find the right gift, and I fail every time. I told you not too long ago about how a couple Christmases ago, she asked for tongs for Christmas, the kind you use to get corn on the cob out of boiling water, that sort of thing, you know? But I bought her these tiny little sugar cube tongs. And for the last year, she's been showing them to all of her friends, and they've been laughing, and ha-ha, that's funny, right? Now, now, that could create shame in me, right, and make me never want to buy her another gift again, but... I am open about my failure. I know that my wife loves me. That gives me security to innovate and risk. So this Christmas, she asked for a pasta fork. We are so romantic in the Dudley household. It's just amazing. Like, it's just... So I found the fanciest high-tech, I searched all over Bellevue, fanciest high-tech pasta fork I could find. It's a fork. It's a spoon. It's got this cool hinge on it. Like It's the best pasta fork ever. A couple weeks ago, I found it in the Goodwill pile. So I rescued it for some sermon illustration in the future, right? But I, I know I, I'm open about my failure. I'm telling all of you about it. I know my wife loves me. That gives me security, so I tried again. And on Valentine's Day, I found the perfect gift. Scotchmallows. Marshmallows covered with chocolate and caramel. And because I know my wife, she is fearfully and wonderfully made. I got them for her the day after Valentine's Day, which meant they were on sale. Which just thrilled her frugal little heart to no end. She actually squealed with joy. She hugged me after 18 years of marriage. Victory. I innovated. I created. I finally found a way to her heart. Which is why that's what she got for Mother's Day. And we'll get for every holiday from here on out. <coughs> What's the point of that? The point is this. If I'd felt shame about my gifts, that could just shut me down, you know, maybe toss a card at her once in a while or, or whatever, right? But I don't. I know she loves me, so I can kind of experiment. I'm not going to be rejected. The gift might, but I'm not being rejected, right? I get that. Now, I know shame gets a lot more serious than that, and I'll tell you a more serious story at the end of the sermon. But even in daily things, freedom from shame helps us thrive. Worship, penitent, that is, open about our flaws and our shame, Next two will go quicker. The next cure for the common life, David was passionate. And we saw this in a couple weeks ago when we looked at him dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And you can actually see a glimpse of that in this psalm. It's actually a weird little part of this psalm, one of the weirdest parts of any psalm. Throughout, we didn't read it, but I'm going to read it to you now. Throughout the psalm, David is saying things, these moving lines. Things like, if I go up to heaven, you are there. and If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. How precious are your thoughts, O God. Right? But then in the very next verse, he says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. And then the next verse, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. Okay, like maybe that outburst? What do you think? Okay, there are two things I love about this. The first is it is so real and so honest. I have done stuff like this. Maybe you have too. You know, you're driving down the road, listening to Christian music, singing along. I love you, Lord. Someone cuts you off. Oh, you would slay the wicked. And I lift my voice. 
It is real. It is honest. Right? Y'all have done it. I know that laugh. It's like, uh-huh. You're all like, uh-huh, he nailed me. But it's also very passionate. See, God prefers full-hearted people who live life full-on, not measured out in coffee spoons. People whose passion runs deep, even if it's messier, even if they make more mistakes that way. He prefers a full heart to a cold and calloused heart. Pray that the Lord increases your passion for him and for what he's doing in the world. Because when we are passionate about God and God's purposes, life just gets more interesting. Worshiper, penitent, passionate, and finally, David was a warrior. And you see that even in that outburst. Because what is David angry about? Himself, stuff about himself? No, it's about God, people who oppose God and what God is doing in the world. Because throughout David's life, he was a warrior fighting to protect God's people and advance God's purposes in the world. If you look at all the adventure literature throughout the ages, from King Arthur and his knights to Harry Potter, the hero, the hero or the heroine always have four things. A battle to fight, a love to win, adversity to overcome, and adventure to live. Battle to fight, love to win, adversity to overcome, and adventure to live. God's battle to fight is his rescue mission to this planet. His love to win is you, me, and the whole world. The adversity to overcome is the damage that the devil does, and that's the adventure that he invites us to live into as warriors in his rescue mission who use not the weapons of this world, but who use the weapons Jesus gave us of love and grace and mercy, which are the most powerful weapons in the universe. And when we do that, life gets bigger. Not that there aren't times of disappointment and failure, of course, but even in that, life just gets bigger because we're about something bigger than ourselves. Last week, I told you a story of a businessman who had to fire someone because he'd failed a drug test, but showed that he cared about that man, got him into a rehab program, sent letters of encouragement afterwards. Now that man is clean, sober, great husband, great father. Okay, if even in firing someone, you can be part of God's rescue mission and change a life, then even the most ordinary job becomes more interesting. All of life gets bigger. Well, then how do I figure out, pastor, what my role is in God's rescue mission? Because it'll be unique to each one of us. Well, one way to do that is to ask this question. What makes me mad, sad, glad? And your role in God's rescue mission can be at the intersection of those three things. If what makes you sad and mad is youth without caring adults in their lives, but it makes you glad to be with them, then maybe volunteering in our youth department or at Eastside Academy or Jubilee Reach Center, maybe that's your place. Maybe you're a coach type person. It makes you glad to help folks realize their potential. It makes you sad and mad if they don't. So maybe that changes the way you do performance reviews in your office to be more developmental and less punitive. Whatever it is, your place in God's battle to rescue this world is going to be unique to you because God doesn't make cookie-cutter people. In fact, that's one of the things that leads to a great life. We are personally known. In this psalm, David says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together. And those words, knit and weave, imply a careful, personal, each stitch taken with care. God does not mass produce us. We are unique. And having made you, God knows what you want and need even better than you do. I've told you this before, but in my 20s and my 30s, the, I thought the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to me would be that I would be a pastor. The only thing more hideous than that would be being a senior pastor. But here's the thing. God knew what I wanted even more than I knew what I wanted because you all have been one of the best things for me. We were made to be warriors in God's battle to rescue this world and there's a tailor-made role for each one of us. 
One of the things that sort of intrigues me are the ads on my Facebook page because supposedly from your posts and your likes and all that, they can figure out which ads you're most likely to respond to so they're tailored to you. But I don't think I like their formula because lately I'm getting a lot of ads for hip and knee replacements and hair transplants, <laughs> probably because of my age, right? But also because my kids are on the swim team, I get all these ads for Speedos. Okay, come on, man. Pick your demographic and commit. Right? Knee replacements and Speedos should not be marketed to the same guy. They have not figured out the special je ne sais quoi that is moi. But God has. And your place in his rescue mission will be unique, but when you find it, it makes life bigger. I have a single friend who didn't drink all the time, but whenever he did, he got really drunk. And he also slept with a whole lot of different women, and then he'd break up with them shortly afterwards. So his body was writing emotional checks his heart could not cash. But finally, he met a woman who he really loved. But then one night when she was out of town, he got drunk and slept with some woman that he'd hooked up with. And his girlfriend found out about it, broke up with him. Well, he'd never thought of himself as an alcoholic, but after that, he figured he had a problem. So he decided to go to an AA meeting and start doing the 12 steps, one of which is to make amends. So he had lunch with each of the women that he had slept with and asked their forgiveness. Didn't say, I'm sorry, because that phrase puts us in the driver's seat. He said, will you forgive me? Much more vulnerable. And he said the first time he went to an AA meeting, he really felt uncomfortable. But that when he stood up and said, hello, my name is Kurt and I'm an alcoholic. He said that's the first time he understood the grace of Jesus. He said, I've been going to church my whole life, but it never seemed real to me. But now, but in that moment, I got that there's nothing good inside of me, but Jesus is good and I need his help. In fact, he said to me what many people who've been to AA said, and I've shared it with you before. A lot of folks who've been to AA have told me, I think every church service should start like an AA meeting. You know, I stand up here, I'd go first. You know, I'm Scott, I'm a sinner. Hi, Scott, right? I think that'd be a great liturgy. He eventually got sober, but more than that, he says that now, whereas Jesus was just stories to him before, just theories, now Jesus seems very real. He eventually met another woman, and they got married. Now they've got this great marriage. Along the way, he also started to tutor kids at his church because when kids don't have what they need, it makes them mad and it makes them sad, but what makes them glad is to be with them. But he's also looking for ways just to make a difference, be part of God's battle, just in the daily stuff of life. One time at his office, he asked a woman, how are you? And she asked a question back instead of answering him. And he said, oh, oh, I'm married now. I've got a wife now. And she's taught me that when you answer a question with a question, it means something's really wrong. So how are you really? I'm here to listen. And she went on to say she had cancer and was really scared. And he listened and he consoled her. He's a different man. Focused on Jesus, that's called worship. Penitent, honest, open with his flaws and his shame passionate for Jesus and his purposes in the world, and he is a warrior, part of God's battle to undo the damage the devil has done. So which of those four cures do you need the most? Maybe this week is to focus on God more so you can be a worshiper or be open with God and and maybe one other trusted person about some places of shame that you don't tell anyone so you can be free of it or ask God to make you more passionate or to be more of a warrior in his cause. Whatever it is, as we do these things, God gets bigger, which means our life gets bigger. David's life was a lot of things. Messy, victorious, filled with failure, filled with faith. But the verse you will never see is, and behold, it came to pass that David was bored. It is just not in there. Because David followed God, not just sort of, but full on, double down on the Lord, not just a little, but with everything he had, life in high death. 
So if that's what you want, if that's what you want when that quarter runs out and it's all over, and you want to be able to say, what have you what an experience. Thank you, Jesus, what a ride. If that's what you want, then just as one step right now, as I close, I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to ask that you, if that's what you want, that you silently come in agreement with this prayer as I pray it. So Jesus, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. Secrets of my thoughts, all the mystery of my ways. Lord, before a word is on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. Jesus, you know my heart better than I do, so help me worship you, be real with you, be passionate about you, and be a warrior in your cause, Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, and lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus, lead me in your everlasting way. And I will give you the glory. Amen.